Okay, let's go to God in prayer as we ask Him to help us to understand His Word to us. Dear Father, as we come before You, as we read this seemingly ordinary part of Your Word, the anointing of David, we pray that we may have insight through Your Holy Spirit into what You are doing in history, in the world, and what it means for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, the principal of my uh, theological college used to say, the knowledge of God is the engine room of Christian living. Okay, now I'll say it again because it's so deep and profound. The knowledge of God is the engine room of Christian living. And I think that's true, isn't it? As you know God, as we know God, as we understand God, then it affects the way that we live, it affects the way that we think, it affects the way that we are, the way that we see ourselves. Now, as we look at chapter 16 today, uh, it begins with the prophet Samuel, and he's, uh, he's grieving, okay? He's sad, he's in mourning, and, uh, you know, he begins each morning with a sigh, and he continues the day with this black cloud around him, right? Because in verse 1 it says, How long will you mourn? And what is he mourning over? He's mourning over Saul. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at chapter 12 to 15 of Samuel, and who is the main topic? It's about Saul, isn't it? And Saul had begun so with so much promise. People had wanted so many things out of him. He was this big, tall, strapping fellow. Remember, he was a head taller than everybody else. And uh, unfortunately, as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's been a total failure. He's been faithless. He's put his faith in everything except God. He's been disobedient over and over again. God tells him to do something, but he doesn't do it. He's been spiritually blind because he keeps insisting that he's doing the right thing even though he's doing the wrong thing. And he's been given chance after chance but he's failed over and over again and God has given up on him. He's rejected by God. And it's grieved Saul, sorry, Samuel a lot as we see there in verse 1. Now, I think when we read verse 1 it says that uh, Samuel mourned for Saul. He wasn't just mourning for Saul the person. I think he was mourning for Saul, for who he was. He was the king of God's people of Israel. And I think that part of Samuel, the prophet Samuel, mourning for Saul was his fear that the faithlessness, the disobedience and the spiritual blindness of the king would actually impact on his people. So if you remember, uh, if you look up here on the slide, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we read very early on that the prophet Samuel had warned the people that the fate of the king and the fate of the nation were very closely tied together, isn't it? So in verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, Now when you, the Israelites, saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you have asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands, and if you, both you and the King who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, here we can see how the fate of both the King and the nation are tied together. Right? So here, as the King has rebelled and is disobedient and spiritually blind, then the fear of Samuel is the people will be led astray and they too will face God's wrath. But look at what happens in verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. 
The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as a king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now here I think we learn something about God, isn't it? We said the knowledge of God is the engine room of Christian living. And here we find something very important about God. It is the first thing we learn about God, and that is He is a gracious and forgiving God. Because as we've been reading from chapter 12 to chapter 16, really, God should have been very angry and punishing God's people. Because right at the very beginning, God's people have rejected God as king, and therefore God should have been very angry with them and should have punished them, but instead, He gave them a king. We see here by chapter 16 that God's king, the king that they themselves had also chosen, had been faithless, disobedient, spiritually blind. And what should God have felt? What should God have done to them? He should have been angry and punished them. But instead, he was gracious and merciful and gave them another king. So here, the first thing we learn about God is that he's a gracious and merciful God. But tied in with his grace and mercy is that he is powerful and sovereign. Because he is able to choose another king. He is able to act in history and provide another king to replace the bad king, King Saul. Now, I think this is a very important point, isn't it? The grace of God and the sovereignty and power of God. Because if that is the way that God is, then it doesn't matter really whether other people fail or whether other institutions fail, but God will always be able to be gracious and forgive. I remember when I did uh, church history in theological college. Uh, if you ever get a chance to do church history, it's very uh, helpful and enlightening. And you'll be amazed as you look at the scope of the church from the very beginning to now, you'll see that there have been times where the church as an institution, the church as a people, shouldn't really exist anymore. So there have been times in church history where false teaching was rampant. And it's a miracle. It's really a miracle by God's grace and God's power, that the church still remains faithful to His word today. There have been times where, in the early church, where the church has been corrupt and dominated by people who have been interested in political power, especially in the early Roman uh, Catholic Church. But again, God caused the Reformation to come about, and here we are, we are a church, and there are churches today which believe in God's word, despite of that. There have been times where the church has been compromised by sinful living and corruption by the world. And again, God watched over His church and provided leaders and circumstances where God's people will still be watched over and saved. So I think that as we look at this really early part of 1 Samuel 16, we see that the grace of God and the power and sovereignty of God teaches us that our faith should not be on people, but our faith should be on God. Because God never fails. People can fail, but God never fails. So I remember uh, in my daily devotion last week, there was a quote which said, Our plans may fail, but God doesn't fail. Christians and Christian leaders may fall, but God does not fall. Our work may suffer, but His never does. Nothing, nothing touches Him. He is still and always God. And I think that's really true, isn't it? Because we see here, that God's people, in one Samuel, keep making the wrong decisions. The king that they choose keeps making the wrong decisions. But God is still gracious 
and provides them another king to lead them. Now the story continues, and it's a very simple story really. Uh, next slide. It shows how uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, was instructed by God to go to Bethlehem to visit uh, this uh, family called the Jesse of Bethlehem. Okay, So, in the, in the previous chapter, in chapter 15, uh, King Saul resides in Gibeah, and King Samuel resides in Ramah. Oh, sorry, King Samuel resides in Ramah. Okay, King Saul resides in Gibeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, let me... Sorry. See, I, I can't think very well when I'm looking out like this. My, my brain gets a bit affected. Okay, let's start again. Prophet Samuel lives in Ramah. King Saul lives in Gibeah. Okay, and the family of Jesse lives in Jerusalem, uh, sorry, in, in Bethlehem down here, okay? So in order for the prophet Samuel to go down to this place in Bethlehem, he has to pass through the territory of King Saul. And that thought fills him with fear, isn't it? Fear, real fear. Why? Because he fears that King Saul will kill him. This is the sort of king that Saul has become. He's a power-hungry, merciless, ruthless leader like Stalin or Pol Pot who will not stop at murder to keep his throne. Okay, So this is the picture of the king of God's people. But uh, Samuel is obedient and he makes his way down to uh, the family of Jesse in Bethlehem. And when he arrives, uh, who does he meet? He meets all the sons. And so let's look at verse 6 and look, look at what verse 6 says. It says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Okay, so you know he's got this. He's got this horn of oil. Okay, it's a, it's like this container, right? Think of a flask of of oil, which is used to symbolically anoint uh, the next king. So you know he's already holding up the oil, ready to anoint him. Why? Because Eliab looks like a really impressive person. Look, you know, we read later that uh, you know he's probably very tall and he's very strong. So think of a really impressive hunk of a man, isn't it? Someone who's like a big rugby player or an MBA center. Okay, so I thought to connect with you, so for the older generation, think of Eliab as someone like this. Okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger, alright? Okay, so for some of the younger people here, you might not know who this person is, because he's a very old person now. So, we'll change it to this person. Okay, the tall person. I don't know what his name is, very hard to pronounce. But anyway, but that's probably what Eliab looked like, isn't it? Strong, tall, Impressive. And Samuel looked at him and thought, okay, this person, this person must surely be king. Now, Samuel was making the same mistake as when they appointed Saul the first time, isn't it? Because what, what stood out about Saul when we read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9? Okay, I'm not going to read it out to you, you can look it up yourself. 1 Samuel 9 verse 2, isn't it? Saul was notable because he was taller than everybody else. He was a tall person. And again, they seem to be very impressed with the physical stature of Eliab. But what does God look for? Well, look at what God says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things 
people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that's not to say that the eventual king that was chosen, David, was ugly. Because later on, we learn that actually David was handsome. But the point is that what God looks for is not what man looks for. It's not what Samuel is looking for. In fact, as we read on the story, even his own father, Jesse, did not think that by outward appearance, David should have been considered king material. Right? Remember, seven of his sons passed by. So there were seven people who looked even more physically impressive than David. And when he was asked by Samuel, do you have any more children? Look at what Jesse, uh, look at what Jesse says in verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So you read between the lines, Jesse is basically saying, are you sure you want to look at this youngest son? Because he's out there tending the sheep and it's going to take a long time for him to come in. Surely these other seven are more impressive than David. But ultimately, it is David who has the right heart, isn't it? The right heart. So in verse 12, it says, So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. See, he was not an ugly person. It's not about whether you're ugly or good looking. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, as we're looking at this passage, uh, it's kind of hard to know what are we meant to learn from this, right? I, I mean, is there something we can apply to ourselves today? Is there some relevance to us today? Well, I think like I said before, I think this passage shows us about the knowledge of God, isn't it? The knowledge of God. And what is God like? So it's not so much about leadership or fashion or appearance, but what does it say about God? Well, the first thing that, actually, if you look at this passage, that you notice is that God gives His Holy Spirit powerfully to David. Now, I know there's a bit of confusion about God and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to every true Christian, every true believer, as both a counselor, to teach them what God is saying, as well as a deposit for uh, guaranteeing eternal life. So if you look up here on the slide, I just sort of combined four key verses on the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, um, Jesus promises that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, uh, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So Jesus says, I will go, and God will send the Holy Spirit to remind you of all the things I've said. And then in Acts chapter 2, is it up there, Acts chapter 2, yep. When the day of Pentecost came to remember Jesus died, he rose again from the dead and all the believers went uh, to, uh, together. And then the day of Pentecost came and all together were one place. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so after Jesus 
had died and risen again, the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. And like I said, uh, the Holy Spirit comes as a counsellor to teach and remind them of what Jesus had said. But the next slide, it also is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal life and our inheritance. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set a seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit in our heart as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Okay, so in the New Testament, it's very clear. We get the Holy Spirit. All of us here have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it teaches us what God is telling us in the Bible, but also as a promise, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. But if you look in the Old Testament, very few people have the Holy Spirit. Uh, only a, it's only a, a unique and exceptional few who have the Holy Spirit. And as we've been looking at Samuel and Judges, it is those who are empowered by God for special acts. Uh, the judges, the prophets, uh, you know, the kings, those are the people who get the Holy Spirit. So as we look here, we see that David, once he is anointed by Samuel, gets the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers David to be king and is a sign to people that he is marked out as a king. It's a sign of his empowerment as king. And I think this is so important for us because we, might, we need to remember as well what happened to Jesus, isn't it? Because when Jesus was baptized, he was also marked out by the Holy Spirit for the task that God wanted him to do. So Matthew chapter 3, right, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. So just as God marks out David right, clearly as the king, so God clearly marked out his Savior for our sake, like a dove it came on Jesus. And what it means for us is, we need to follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that God clearly marked out as his son and said to us, follow him, listen to him. He is the Savior. He is the King. Now the problem is, that the people didn't follow Jesus, even though he was the king. They were not willing to follow God's plan and follow God's criteria. Instead, they imposed their own plan and their own criteria on Jesus. So we must never judge by externals, like Samuel did, but we must judge by what God tells us to judge by. So again, if you look up here on the slide, okay, this is a cross-section, right? So the people didn't want Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus because of the external reasons, isn't it? So they didn't want to accept Jesus because why? He was like one of them. Right? They said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Isn't aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, they were judging by their own standards. They were putting their own criteria on Jesus. Some others said, uh, how can the Christ come from Galilee? He came from the wrong part of town. right?" Some other people, next slide, 
Alright, very good. They didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like his teaching. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So they were judging Jesus because they didn't like his teaching. And others were jealous of the popularity of Jesus. The chief, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. See, one of the lessons that we learn here is that we must trust God's plan. Isn't it? It's not our plan that God approves of us, but it's we approving of God's plan. And that's one of the reasons why so many people are not Christians. Uh, I know that there may be some of you here today who doubt Jesus, have not given your life to Jesus and accepted Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe some of you are struggling right now. But is that because you are measuring Him and imposing on Him your human standard? You want a king who will promise to make you happy. You want a king who will allow you to do the things you want to do and not make you have to give up things that you know are sinful and you still enjoy. Maybe you want a king who promises you things but no suffering. But that's not the king that God gives, isn't it? And God is the one who knows what we really need. And we need a king who would go to the cross and die for our sins. So what do we learn of God here? God knows better than we know what we really need. And if God gave us Jesus, and clearly showed it by the Holy Spirit, that we need to accept Jesus totally, isn't it? But look at the standard of God. Look what God says in verse 7. God says that He does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, if heart is what is important to God, then the question is, is our heart right with God? Right? Is, do we spend a time reflecting on what is really in our heart before God? Now, I know that uh, when I was looking at verse 14 to verse uh, 23 of the passage, I really struggled with this and I said, you know, why did God want to tell us about how the Spirit had left King Saul and sent him this uh, spirit which made him, I don't know, have some physical ailment. Why, why do we need to show that David could join the music team? Right? He's really good with the, with the harp or the lyre. I mean, what's the point of that? What's the point of telling us all these things? And I think actually, it is, there is a point to it. And the point is that it shows that David actually has a good heart, isn't it? See, the chapter started out by showing Saul to be an ambitious, proud, jealous man who would be willing to kill for the kingship. But here we see David, who has been anointed king, who has received the Holy Spirit, but is yet humble, servant-minded, willing to play the harp at the beck and call of a bad king. See, David has a good heart. A heart which is humble, which is servant-minded, which loves God. And I wonder for ourselves whether we have a heart that is pleasing to God. Because if God looks at the heart and values what is on our heart, then what is on our heart? 
So again, last week at the pastor's conference, uh, the, the, the teacher said this great quote. Actually, he's got a lot of good quotes. And he said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's quite deep, right? In the end, what your heart really wants to do, you will do and your mind will justify. So at the end of the day, what is really in your heart? What do you long for in your heart? Is it, do you long for things which are important to God? Are you, do you long to please God? Do you long to love God? And again, he was saying how pride, our pride is such an anti-state, anti-God state of mind. Because in our hearts, if we are proud, we, we love ourselves. And we love the things that we can do rather than love God and love to serve and please God. I was reading, um, or actually I didn't read, my, my wife told me how she read somewhere that there are some famous actresses in Hollywood and they need to spend two hours on their makeup before they can leave the house. Okay? And I was thinking, well that's actually the wrong way of looking at life, isn't it? Because God sees beyond the makeup and God sees your heart. So I'm not asking you to spend two hours reflecting your heart every day, but do you actually reflect on your heart? Whether it's filled with the bad things like envy, greed, gossip or lust or anger. Or is it filled with things that please God like generosity, patience, love, contentment and joyfulness. I guess another thing that occurred to me about heart is it's not just our hearts which are important but our children's hearts. Isn't it? And that's good because so many of us here have children and we send our kids to children's school and I was thinking do we focus on nurturing our children's hearts or their externals? Right? Um, do we spend more time worrying about how they play the piano or how they swim or hit the tennis ball or in their studies or to make sure that their heart is right before God? So I received this email <coughs> from this Focus on the Family thing, uh, seminar on parenting. I was going to recommend it to you but I haven't bought the book yet so I don't know the rest of it. But I remember looking at this uh, part of the, his talk on the YouTube and this uh, guy who's giving the talk was saying that uh, the reason why he started this ministry, which is called Faith Begins at Home or Building Faith at Home, was that he, he, he heard a speaker or he heard some DVD about how to use your time more effectively saying that what you should do is you should drop your children off to a Sunday school or youth group and then spend that time shopping. And he said, he said, surely the most effective use of my time is not to subcontract my children's faith and their heart to, to other people, but to nurture them myself. And he felt that that's why he wanted to start this ministry to really remind parents that ultimately the most important thing you can do is to make their hearts right before God. So in conclusion, as we look at today's passage, it's really a very straightforward passage in it. If you want to summarize it in one sentence, it's the prophet Samuel anointing David. But actually, there's so much more than that, isn't it? Because it shows actually God working to give His people a new king. And we, we say we know God, but do you really know God? Do you really know Him as He really is? Because He's a God of grace and mercy, a God of power and sovereignty, and even when other people, when other circumstances fail or let you down, God will not fail and let you down. He is merciful and powerful and if you trust in Him, 
He will save you. God gave His Holy Spirit as a, a sign and empowerment. His values and His plans are beyond our view. So that means that we must keep trusting in Jesus even when humanly speaking when we see things it doesn't make as much sense as we would like it to. And last of all if God looks at our hearts and values our hearts and what's in it then let's spend time reflecting on what is in our hearts and making sure that in our hearts and the hearts of our children that we are really loving God serving God and treasuring the things which are important to God. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how even in the midst of a people who are rebellious, amidst of a, uh, a king who is a tyrant and a murderer, you are willing to step in with grace and mercy to provide a new king. Help us to see that even the world that we live in, other Christians and Christian institutions may fail, but yet you never fail because you are gracious, you are powerful and saving and you always intercede to protect your people. Dear Father, we pray that we may always look to Jesus. He was the one that was clearly declared by your voice and the Holy Spirit to be our Saviour and King. May we never measure Jesus by our standards, but always trust in your plan. And may we also watch our hearts, and the hearts of our children, to see that that's what really matters to you. Not the outward impressive things which are so valued by this world, but a heart which sincerely and humbly seeks and loves you in everything that it does. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.